It is great to see you all. Thanks for joining us on a holiday weekend again, somehow. Uh, you know, if it seems like we just finished the Advent season, it's because we did. Uh, but somehow, nevertheless, as Lisa mentioned, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, which marks the beginning of Lent, which is the season of soul searching and repentance leading up to Easter. And so this morning, as we enter into that, we are beginning a new teaching series anchored in the Gospel of John that will take us through Resurrection Sunday. Now, John's story of Jesus's life is really unique relative to the stories that are told by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Unlike the other Gospels, in John, there is no account of the virgin birth. There's no Sermon on the Mount, no teaching on the kingdom of God, no parables, and no exorcisms. Instead, John's story of Jesus' public ministry revolves around seven signs that Jesus performed. And the Greek word for sign is semion, which can mean anything from an identifying mark to a proof to a banner to follow. And it can also carry the idea of a sign from heaven, which John is definitely drawing upon when he uses this word in his narrative. And so for John, these, these signs are not merely a demonstration of Jesus's power. They're also an identifying mark. They are a signature of who Jesus is. They are proof, ultimately, of Jesus's messianic identity. And toward the end of his gospel, after John records all seven of the sign stories and the story of Jesus's resurrection, John chapter 20, verse 30, says that Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John reveals there for us that he has purposefully curated these stories. And from all of the other things that Jesus said and did, he has purposefully curated these stories for a very distinct purpose, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so John writes, so that his readers, and so that we, his hearers today, can believe. And given the frequency with which John uses the word believe over the course of his gospel, it's no surprise really that this is really at the core of his purpose. John uses the word believe 98 times in his gospel, which is not only significantly more than it's used in any of the other gospels, it's also significantly more than it's used in all of Paul's writings as well. And something else that's interesting about John's love for this word believe is that he always uses the verb. He always uses the verb. He never uses the noun for faith. It's always the verb. And that is because for John, believing is very much an action. Right? Believing is an action. And we see that in verse 31. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Right? So that you may believe and that by believing. And the tense of the verb that's translated as by believing is significant. It's in the present tense, which in the Greek communicates an ongoing continuous activity. 
Right? And so believing for John is an ongoing endeavor. It's not something that we do one time. We believe and we keep on believing. Right? And so John has written these stories so that we can do that, so that we can believe. And by keeping on believing, we may have life in his name. Now, like there are several different words for the word love in the Greek language, there are also several different words for life as well. And here in John chapter 20, verse 31, like he does throughout his entire narrative, John uses the word zoe as opposed to the word bios. Bios communicates the life of the physical body. Zoe is the life that God has that is shared through Jesus. Bios life is temporal and infinite. Zoe life is eternal and, and infinite. And for John, it has both present and future implications. And so by believing, we experience Zoe life, both now and in the future. And over the next eight weeks, our teaching series for the season, Signs of Life, will explore each of these seven signs that John has chosen. And we'll be looking together at what each one reveals about Jesus's identity as the Messiah and the invitation that each one extends to us to believe in him and to experience life through him. And we're going to begin this morning uh, with the first of the signs that Jesus performed. If you'd like to join me in the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to John chapter 2, which is our text for this morning. Uh, you're also welcome, as always, to follow along with the text, either on the screens that are behind me here in the auditorium or the screen that's out in the courtyard as well. And as we pick up the action this morning in John chapter 2, Jesus' disciples have just started following him, and he is just beginning, he is just beginning his public ministry. So that's the context as we begin reading in verse 1 of John chapter 2. John writes, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best until now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now, such a fantastic story and so, so rich. And as we heard there in verse one, there's a wedding in Cana in Galilee and Jesus's mother was there. And then verse 2 says that Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, 
Something that is characteristic of John's narrative is that John writes with tremendous precision and intent. John writes with tremendous precision and intent. And so there's a tremendous amount of nuance to John's writing that can sometimes result in a wonderfully clever sense of humor. Uh, and we see an example of that here in verse 2, actually. The NIV translation of verse 2 says, And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And while that seems very straightforward and innocuous as we read it in English, what's interesting is that in the original language, the verb that John uses is singular and not plural. Right? And so the text doesn't say that Jesus and his disciples, they, plural, had been invited to the wedding. It says that Jesus, singular, had been invited to the wedding. And so through the subtlety of John's narrative, uh, we discover there that Jesus shows up at this wedding, not with a plus one, but with a plus 12. <laughs> right? Jesus was invited, and he brought the disciples along with. Right? And so the disciples are effectively wedding crashers here, uh, which I think is just so, so great. Now, as significant as weddings typically are right, in our present-day cultural context, both in terms of what they cost financially, as well as in terms of how much time we spend attending them, in the village culture of Palestine, weddings were even more significant. Weddings in first century Palestine were announced well in advance, and they were something that the entire village would take part in. And the parties for these weddings typically went on for days, like seven days, and sometimes even longer. And the families of the couple was obligated to provide and to pay for both the food and the drinks during the entire celebration, however long it might last. And failing to do that would not just represent an embarrassment for the families, but it would also result in social shame as well, which is most likely why Jesus's mother became concerned when she discovered that the wine was gone. But look again at Jesus's response when she brings this to his attention in verse six. Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And so these, interestingly enough, are the first words that we hear from Jesus in this narrative. And given the flow of the story up to this point, Jesus's response, I don't know, for me at least, feels kind of surprising and unexpected. Right? Starting with the way that he addresses his mother as woman, which to our modern ears can sound kind of strange and almost even derogatory. But the Greek word that John uses here is essentially the equivalent of something like madam or lady. So it's not a derogatory term in the original language, but it is formal. And from there, Jesus goes on to question why she has even brought this up with him at all. And literally, he asks her, what is this to you and to me? What is this to you and to me? And so Jesus clearly doesn't consider this crisis to be their concern, which means, I think, in case you might have been wondering, that the unexpected presence of the disciples at the wedding, Jesus' plus 12, wasn't the reason that the wine ran out. But it's really what Jesus says next that is telling. He says at the end of verse 4, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And throughout the course of John's gospel, Jesus repeatedly uses this word 
hour to refer to his death. He uses the word hour to refer to his death. And so Jesus' response is, is very much tied to something else that is on his mind. Like far more significant and far beyond this wedding that he is attending in Cana, right? which is his greater mission. The mission for which he came and dwelled among us. The mission of the cross. But nevertheless, uh, despite that initial resistance, Jesus intervenes. Look again with me at John chapter 2, verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And notice there, you know, through some more narrative subtlety, that the miracle has already happened at this point, but only Jesus knows it. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best until now. You know, what Jesus does here at this wedding reveals so much to us about who he is. Right? What Jesus does at this wedding reveals so much to us about who he is. We see Jesus' compassion right, as he sees a need and does something about it. Right? Despite the fact that he didn't consider this wine crisis initially to be his concern. Now, we see the grace of Jesus in abundance through the sheer amount of wine that he provides. You know, one of the distinctives of the sign stories that we will see throughout our series is that they often include some kind of numeric element. The sign stories often have some particular numeric element to them. And we see that in this story in the specific details that John provides about the water jars. And not only does John specify that there are six of them, but he also specifies their size as well, that each holds 20 to 30 gallons. And that enables us to see the incredible amount of wine that, that Jesus produces, upwards of some 180 gallons, which is so much that it's almost humorous. Right? And then on top of that, on top of the fact that there's so much wine, it's also really good wine too. Right, better, according to the master of the banquet, than any that's been served. Right, and so we see the abundant grace of Jesus on display. And then we also see Jesus' humility. Right, notice that there is no attention that's brought to the crisis as Jesus is dealing with this. No fanfare around Jesus' provision of the wine. Instead, Jesus works through the servants to save the party. And ultimately, the credit for how amazing this wine is ultimately goes to the bridegroom, right, who is lauded for saving the best wine for last. And so everything happens very humbly and very unassumingly. So one of the things that we will see throughout our series is that for John, 
much more important than any of these miracles that he is recording is the significance of the miracle. Much more important for John than the miracle itself is its significance. And John reveals the significance of this sign in the very last verse of the story. John chapter 2, verse 11 says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs which he revealed, through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And so John reveals for us there that the significance of this sign is that it was the first. The significance of this sign was that it was the first. The word that's translated as first literally means beginning. And so this sign is the beginning. And what Jesus does here at the beginning to reveal his glory is totally unique. What Jesus does here at the very beginning to reveal his glory is totally unique. Jesus makes something from nothing. Jesus makes something from nothing. There are no grapes at Cana. There are no ingredients present for making wine. But Jesus makes wine nonetheless. He turns the water in the jars into something else entirely. And through that, Jesus reveals to us something of God's glory. Through that, Jesus reveals to us something of God's very essence, which is that when God wants to do something new, he doesn't need any ingredients. When God wants to do something new, he doesn't need any ingredients. He uses whatever is available. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. Now we noted earlier John's affection for the word believe uh, and specifically for the verb believe because of the way that it communicates faith as an action. And we see that reinforced here in verse 11 through the first appearance in this gospel of one of John's favorite expressions. Although the phrase, and his disciples believed in him, doesn't look peculiar, again, we have something subtle happening in the original language that's significant. Literally, the grammar at the end of verse 11 reads, and his disciples believed into him. His disciples believed into him. Now in English, we don't say that someone believed into someone else. But John uses this construction almost all of the time when he uses the verb believe. And that's because, once again, it emphasizes believing as moving towards something. Which reinforces the idea that faith is a continuous ongoing action. And so as a result of this sign, the disciples believed into Jesus. They began the journey that they would be taking over the course of following him, of moving toward him. As a result of what Jesus did here at the wedding at Cana, their belief deepened. The story of the wedding at Cana shows us Jesus's compassion it shows us Jesus' grace. 
It shows us Jesus' humility. And it also shows us, and I think a very wonderful way, and in a way like the rest of John's writing, where it is just so subtle, it also shows us that Jesus always goes where he is invited. That Jesus always goes where he is invited. And so as we begin our journey together this morning into this season leading up to Easter, what invitation will you extend to Jesus? What invitation will you extend to Jesus? Jesus always goes where he is invited, even and especially into the no-wine circumstances. He always goes where he is invited, even and especially into the no-wine circumstances of our lives, into the no-wine circumstances of our relationships, and even into the no-wine circumstances in our world. And so what invitation will you extend to Jesus? How might God be inviting you to believe into him during this Lenten season? The band is going to come now, and we're going to close this morning uh, by sharing together in the practice of communion. Now, John makes a point of noting that the six stone jars of water that Jesus turns into wine were the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washings, the ceremonial washings that ritually cleansed them and purified them. And with the number seven being the number that was symbolic of fullness or completeness in ancient Near Eastern and Israelite culture, Many ancient commentators suggest that the fact that there are six of these jars is symbolic of the incompleteness of those ritual washings, which of course Jesus ultimately would, would literally fulfill and replace through his very sacrifice on the cross, where the blood that he shed would cleanse us from sin once and for all. As the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God, God's grace that he lavished on us. And so as we partake of the elements this morning, the bread, which represents Jesus' body, and the cup, which represents his blood, may we remember today the sacrificial love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross so that we could experience forgiveness from sin and life in God's presence both today and for eternity.